Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to read two passages from the 17th chapter of John. The scripture is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, one of the most priceless passages of scripture where we have a chance to see Christ at prayer, hear him pray, and see into his heart as he prays. Let me read for you the opening paragraph and then the closing one. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed." Now move down to verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't it encouraging to know that we're reading a prayer that Christ prayed for us 2,000 years ago, prayed for us tonight, and that's what it is. So he's praying for us. Uh, That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father... I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Will you pray with me for a moment? Now, our Father, we look to you. We thank you for your love for us in sending your Son, and then your love for us in that you and the Son have sent to us the Holy Spirit to open your word, to bring it alive, to quicken it, and to make us conscious of your presence with us. So tonight, come to us, Lord Jesus, and let us know before the hour is over that you are present and you are speaking and we are responding to you and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. So our subject is knowing him and knowing him more intimately. The scripture that I would like to set as the background for what we are dealing with tonight particularly is John 14 to 17, and especially John 17. 
We, as we said, here we have the opportunity to see Jesus at prayer and to hear him as he prays. The Gospels oftentimes speak about Christ going apart to pray, but normally they do not tell us what his prayer was like. But in John you get at least two instances where you get his prayer. One of them is in the twelfth chapter when the Greeks have come and he is aware as he faces the the fact that the gospel will be carried to those that are non-Jews, to you and to me. He is aware it will take the cross, and so you get this expostulation of his heart to his Father and a very very moving and a very powerful portion of Scripture. But the second is this that came from the last night, where we have 26 verses to give to us an insight into the heart of the Lord Jesus as to how he prayed, as to how he felt, as to what his concerns were, and as to what his passions were. You will notice it is a very intimate conversation. I'd like to urge you tonight, before you go to sleep, to sit down and read it quietly and let the Spirit speak to you through it. Because in it, he bears his soul. And we see what it is that he is all about. He is now only a few minutes from his arrest and only a matter of a few hours from the cross. And it is to our good, and it is a value to us that we can see how he faces it. He is getting ready to face the most painful death, they say, that is possible for a person to face, excruciating. And not only the physical pain of it, but the fact that his own people, the church of his day, his own chosen people have rejected him, and he is going to feel that hostility and the obloquy of the hour. But now as he looks to the cross, it's fascinating to me that as you begin this chapter, you notice he does not look on the cross as a tragedy. It is not for him a disaster. You will notice he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He sees the cross, as we say, not as some great negative, but as a positive through which the world will have a chance to be redeemed. It's interesting in the uh, 16th chapter, the chapter before this, if you'll read it, beginning with verse 16, you will find him talking about the fact that he is going to leave his disciples. And he is aware that they are very sorry. They're filled with sort of anguish of soul that he's going to be taken away from. And he says, you're in anguish now, but he said, let me tell you what it's like. The sorrow that is yours is like the pain of a woman that is in travail, in labor, and something gloriously good is going to come out of it. And when it comes afterwards, you will not look back and remember the sadness of these moments, because as a woman looks into the face of her child and knows the child has been given to her, she forgets the pains through which she has gone and glories in this new life that is hers. So he sees the cross that is ahead of him just exactly like that, as something that will be very productive of good, and so he rejoices in spite of the fact it will be a cause of great pain to him. Now when he's crucified, laid naked on that cross, and then lifted up for the world to hold up in contempt and scorn, that is not a scene of weakness but rather it is a scene of power. Do you notice that he says in this passage where he tells the Father to glorify him? 
since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In the shadow of the cross, before he goes to the cross, he is acknowledging the authority that he has been given by the Father so that what is taking place is not an indication of his weakness, but rather of his power, that paradox of the gospel that what the world sees as tragedy is triumph and what the world sees as weakness is really great strength. You'll remember that in the next chapter when Peter clips the ear of Malchus, Jesus turns to him and says, Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could ask my father and he would send twelve legions of angels down here and they'd straighten things out? I don't have to worry about having power to control things. That's not what I'm after here. You will remember that he said, I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. He lays it down voluntarily. The greatest evidence of the power of God is not when he delivers one of us from our troubles, but when he gives us grace so that we can go through the greatest of troubles and go through them triumphantly. Now, that's something that I think sometimes our contemporary church has forgotten. But the great evidence of power is when a person can embrace that which he naturally would recoil from, turn away from, and count as a negative. He can embrace it in faith in God and believes that God can turn it to good and for his own glory. I'll never forget a conversation with a Romanian Baptist, Joseph Son, when he told about how he was being interrogated mercilessly for his faith, and they were doing their best to destroy him. And he said he came home one day, I'll never forget, we were sitting eating together, and he said, Ken Law, I came home that day completely shattered. I went into my study, shut the door, and fell, fell on my face. And he said, as I fell on my face, I cried out, Oh God, I can't take any more, they're destroying me. He said, Ken Law, I don't think it ever happened, but but three times in my life, but I think I heard a voice. And the voice said, Joseph, get up. He said, I got up, and the voice said, read the book on the shelf. He said, it was only one there the communists had taken his library. It was an E. Stanley Jones devotional. He opened it and turned it. The page that his eye hit was a page on the crucifixion of Christ. And the subject was, the title was, How to Live Above Your Circumstances. He said, you know, uh, he said, as I read, it was about Jesus facing the cross, that he didn't run from it, he didn't fight it, he didn't even in inwardly resist it, he embraced it. And he said, Lord, you don't mean I'm supposed to embrace this interrogator and these interrogations. And the Lord said, yes. Joseph, I'll never forget this. He said, Kinlaw, I said to him, if I'm to embrace that in communist interrogator and these interrogations, You'll have to do something in my heart you haven't done before. And very quietly, Joseph said, and Ken Law, he did. When I walked back into the interrogations, he said, it was almost ludicrous, the change. He said, before I'd been the one in trauma, now it was the communist who was in trauma because he'd lost control of me. He said, you know, uh, he said one day he turned and said, Joseph, you're stupid. You'll never learn. I guess the only thing we can do is kill you. And he said, I looked back at him and said, I understand. That's your ultimate weapon. And when everything else has failed, you can always kill. 
But you know, I have an ultimate weapon. And when you use yours, I get to use mine. And the communist interrogator said, and what is your ultimate weapon? He said, my ultimate weapon's to die. And when I die, I'm not worse off. He said, every tape of every sermon that I've preached that's scattered across Romania will be sprinkled with my blood. And you'll have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than you've got with me alive. He said, the communist anger said, take him out. He said, a few weeks later, I learned through the grapevine that they were saying, Joseph's crazy. He wants to be a martyr. He said, they said, we're not stupid. So Joseph said to me, you know, Ken Law couldn't even talk him into killing me. I read an article the other day by him that told another angle of that story. He said, later that communist in private said to him, Joseph, I like you. You're an amazing person. Now, what do you think it was that got to that communist? It was when God gave him the grace to be strong enough to embrace all the pain that was there and disgrace that came with it and the pressure and to come through victoriously. Now, this is what you see in Jesus. The cross, that death, is facing it. Sign of power, not in any sense of weakness. Because here we see the purpose of the incarnation. Why was it, why was he so eager for it and so ready for it? Because of what would come out of it and what would come out of it, the opportunity to give to you and to me eternal life. Now, I'd like to turn your attention to what is eternal life according to this definition. You know, if you were to speak to the typical American evangelical and ask him, what does it mean to have eternal life? Most of us, I think, would say, well, it means to have your sins forgiven. Or a person would say, well, it means that you don't have to face God in the judgment. That's taken care of. Or it means that you don't go to hell. But it's interesting, Jesus didn't talk about any of these things. He said, what is eternal life? That they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus is saying that eternal life is simply knowing him. Well, let me turn that around. That knowing him and his Father, that's what eternal life really is. To know the God who sent Jesus and the Jesus whom he sent. But now the interesting thing is, if you take that passage where he is talking about his relationship to his Father, you've got a different kind of God than most people think about when they think about God. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, so now, Father, notice this. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the foundation of the world, before the creation, before there was anything other than God. Now, you, I suspect, are a mature enough Christian audience to understand that what's, what he's talking about here is his existence as the eternal Son of God before the creation of the world, when there was nothing but God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Spirit. And now he is talking about that God, and it is that God that to know is to have eternal life. Now, who is this God? He's one who has a son. And do you know that separates the Christian God from all other gods? One of the prominent uh, TV interviewers in this country who's interviewed a number of significant Christians, he himself comes from a non-Christian background. Somebody asked him one day, if you had one question you could ask God, what would you ask? Oh, he said, I'd ask if he had a son. Isn't that interesting? I'd ask if he had a son. Because you see, in his background, there is no son of God. If you read the Quran, you'll find that one of the things the Quran says repetitively is, God has no son. So immediately you know that the God to know, whom to know is to have eternal life, is not the God of Islam. It's the God who is a father and who has a son with the name of Jesus. And he was a son, eternal son. A son when there was no one but God. And a son who is one with the father. A God who is a father who has a son who is one with him. I hope as you read the Gospel of John, you will notice the things Jesus says about his relationship to his Father. On more than one occasion, he says, all yours is mine, and all mine is yours. So that everything that the Father has belongs to the Son, and everything that the Son has belongs to the Father. You will find that uh, in the 14th chapter, the first of these great four chapters that I want to think of as background for tonight, where in the upper room he is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you will remember that one of his disciples asked him, said, show us the Father. And he said, have I been so long time with you and you haven't seen me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now notice the identification between Jesus and God the Father. And you get at the close of the introduction to the book of John, in verse 18 at the end of the prologue, no one has seen God at any time. We were singing a few minutes about God immortal, invisible, God only wise. No one has seen God at any time, but his only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has, interesting words, exegeted him. He's explained God. He's defined him. He's made him known to us. And this God, who is a father, has a son, and they, the father and the son, if you read John's gospel clearly, says they are sending to us the third person of the Trinity, the blessed Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever thought about what a shock that was to his disciples? Because do you know what made a Jew a Jew? The thing that made a Jew a Jew was he believed there was one God and one alone. Do you remember in Deuteronomy what is spoken of as the Shema, the great statement of faith of the Old Testament believer? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Or read through Deuteronomy and notice how many times it says that he is alone and there is none beside him. Or read Isaiah 40 to 50 and you will find that again and again he says, 
The Lord is God alone, and there is no other. There is no one beside him. There is none apart from him. And there is no Savior but he. And now Jesus comes along and says, there's two of us. My Father, and here I am. You can understand how the temple thought that was blasphemy. And so they looked at him and said, we're going, when he asked, why do you want to kill me? They said, we are going to kill you because you're a blasphemer. You are making yourself equal with God. And now, Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen him. When you get me, you get him. If you miss me, you miss him. We are one. Now, uh, does this mean that Jesus had forsaken Judaism's belief in one God? Oh, no. If you read the Gospels, you will find that as a human one of us, he's a devout believer in Abraham, Abraham's God, the God of Moses. But what is he saying? God is one, but in that oneness there is differentiation, personal differentiation. God is one. He would not repudiate the Shema, Hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. But in that oneness, he said, there is diversity. Now, this means that the biblical God is radically different, as I said earlier, from all other gods. You know, there are five basic types of religion in the world. There's what we speak of as pantheism, like Hinduism, where everything is God, everything is divine, even the cows. So you have to treat everything as having divinity within it because it is simply nature. It is what you and I speak of as the creation. That's it. And there is nothing beyond. Just us and no more. That's the background for all of the New Age stuff in our day. You develop the divine within. Then you have a religion like Buddhism in which there really is no God. You'll notice that in Buddhism the statues are not of gods, they're of Buddhas. Because Buddhism is basically a philosophy about pain and how to escape pain, if it's possible to escape pain. And so, God is not even necessary. You don't even have to believe in God to be a Buddhist. And then there's Judaism, which believes in one God, the God of Israel, and they firm on that. How firm are they? I remember when we were at Brandeis, we had a group of evangelical students there. And I think it was the largest group of Protestants they'd ever had. And we met for a Bible study in the Protestant chapel. And they were surprised that uh, this would take place. The Protestant chaplain was a Unitarian. And his prime purpose served to serve the institution was for invocation or a benediction at uh, fundraisers and public events like that. He resigned. I was the oldest one of the evangelicals in the group. And I'd had a good bit of pastoral experience. So I found myself, without seeking it, in the office of the professor of philosophy who was responsible for religious life on campus. And uh, he was very eager to get the chaplaincy out of his hands and get it into somebody else's. So he began telling me what we could do and what we couldn't do. Christmas time, we could decorate the inside of the chapel, but not the outside, so forth. As <laughs> we sat there, I finally looked at him and I said, Dr. Weinstein, let me ask you a question. I'm to represent Protestantism on the campus. 
If I were to invoke the blessings of the triune Godhead on this institution in one of these fundraisers somewhere across the country, or in a commencement, or some other uh, academic service, how would that go? I'll never forget his mouth drop. He stared at me, and if you'll forgive the language, he said, my God, man, the Jesuit doesn't even do that. Let me say, I have a deep indebtedness to Brandeis and to the professor that I had there. I honor him, love him uh, for what he did for me. But you see, in Judaism, God does not have a son. And if you say that he has a son, you have disassociated yourself from Judaism. Now, when you come to Islam, as we said, the Quran says repetitively, God has no son written 500 and some years after the birth of Christ, it's a clear declaration that the God of Islam is not the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Now, what difference does that make? That's not popular to say this kind of thing today, but uh, just let's just be candid and honest with each other about it. What difference does it make if we believe in the doctrine of the triune Godhead, who is the background for the Gospel of John. I noticed on my computer the other day, on America Online, there was a... If you wanted to know some more about the religions of the world, it said, the one thing we know about Judaism, Islam, and Christianity is they all worship the same God. I thought, that's very interesting. But what difference does it make? Let me tell you three things that are very precious. And they're very moving to me. One of them is, it's because God is triune. There is a differentiation in that oneness. He's one God in three persons. It is because of that that we call him Father. Now, you know, I think I was in my 40s before I realized the theology behind that and the biblical truth behind it. Because in my background, I thought what they were saying when we said our Father is, God is like a Father. But the interesting thing is that Jesus said before the foundation of the world, I was your son and you were my Father. So that God is not like a Father, God is a Father. And He is eternally a Father and the Son is eternally a Son. Now, uh, Ours should be like his, but his is the reality of which ours is supposed to be a likeness. Let me share with you a story, an experience I had a number of years ago. I was speaking in a conference in Wilshire Boulevard Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Not sure how I got the invitation, but one of the other speakers was a lady from uh, one of the countries that's in the news today, one of the Muslim countries that's very much in the news today, and that America is rather closely related to at the moment. And uh, she was the wife of a cabinet member in the government. She developed a friendship with two Baptist missionaries. A little unusual for a woman of that standing, but she liked them. They liked her. They were gracious and loving to her, and she responded. They gave her a New Testament, and she began to read the New Testament. And as she read the New Testament, she found her heart drawn. And as she kept reading, she thought, 
you know, there's something attractive about this that I don't find in my own religion. And she yearned for the intimacy with God that those two Baptist missionaries knew and that the New Testament spoke about, knowing him personally, not so remote and so distant. And she said, but I had one stumbling block. It was the Lord's Prayer. She said, I could never pray the Lord's Prayer because she said, I knew that if I called Allah Father, I would be using a human title to describe the Almighty God and it would be plain blasphemy and I would expect to be struck dead the moment I called Allah Father. So she said, I stayed away from him. But she said the hunger kept growing. She said it became so intense that one day when I was alone, in desperation, I looked up daringly and said, Father, and fell flat on my face on the floor in stark terror, waiting to be struck dead. She said, but you know, there was no lightning. There was a deep silence. And then a very quiet voice in the stillness said, Daughter? And she said, I knew I had met the real Father. Now, you and I pray the Lord's Prayer so easily, our Father. You know why we can pray the Lord's Prayer? Because God is a Father. (laughs) He is not like a Father. He is a Father. And so we can have that intimacy with Him that in other religions nobody can have. Okay, there's a second thing. It is because of the Trinity that we have an atonement. You know, it's very simple. In a monotheism where there is only one sitting on the throne, how can he forgive you? If he does, it's simply an act of will. He can't die for you. Because who's going to run the universe while he's dead? But you see, because of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father can send the Son and let Him live in the power of the Spirit, and the Son can sacrifice Himself on Calvary's cross. And when He's dead, three days dead, the Father and the Spirit can bring Him back to life, and we can be redeemed. If you will read, Islam has no doctrine of the atonement. It is all works. It's what you do, and you alone. Now, uh, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious this is to us. But it is because our God is different from the other gods of the world. Now, the third thing that is uh, that fits with this is, this is why we can say that God is love. Now, everybody believes in love. (laughs) And everybody wants love. But only Christians, Christians are the only people in the world with this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who can say, our God is love. Because you see, love is a relationship between more than one person. You've got to have another to experience love. You've got to have an object to love. Self-love is a contradiction. So that Allah may love the martyr who sheds his life for him and for his glory. 
And the God of Israel may love Israel, but it's something the God does. But when it comes to Christianity, John in 1 John can say, 4, 8 and 4, 16, God is love, because that's the relationship that exists between the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Now, you know, I'm not ready to settle, to lose these three precious things that come with the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me share with you an interesting thing from Plato. I found a passage in Plato's Symposium where Socrates, supposedly the wisest man that ever lived, is defining for his friends love. Now, he uses the Greek word eros, which for them had no relationship to sexuality. We are the ones, the Western world, who've made that definition for the erotic. But it is that relationship with another. So Socrates said, there was a very noble lady, Diotima, who explained to me the true nature of love. Socrates said, you see, you love something if it meets a need within your life. If that object out there meets a need within you, you like it. And if that person out there meets a need within your life, you love that person. Now, there's a truth in that. That's the way I got married. <laughs> I like what she did for me. <laughs> I remember the first time I said to her, I love you, I lied straight through my teeth. What I meant was, what I was saying was, when I'm with you, you make me happy. The closer I get to you, the happier I am. Man, it'd be a wonderful thing if I could have you with me all the time, because I just like to be happy. But you see, I said, I love you, because you met a need within me. But you see, in Christianity, you've got something else. You see, the love that marks the heart of God is not that kind of love. Socrates goes on to say, and this is the telling thing, because that's what love is, you love something that meets a need within you, then the gods can't love, because the gods don't have any need. But you see, the New Testament comes along and says, our God is love. And so the church had to develop new terminology to express that kind of love. Because, you see, the biblical love, agape, is where one loves another, not for what the other can do for him, but because of what he can do for that one. A good father loves his son, not for what his son can do for him, but for what he can do for his son. A good mother loves her child, not for what the child can do for her, but that. Now, that's the way God is. God loves, not for what we can do for Him, but because He just loves to love. <laughs> he likes to share Himself with us. And He likes to, to do things for us and fulfill us. You see, it is other-oriented. The love of the world is disoriented, self-oriented. And so we use each other. But the love of God is another oriented love. How does it express itself in John? John says, my father has life in himself and he gives life to me. So where does Jesus get his life? Where does the son get his life? Out of the father. It's interesting. I for nine months drew my life out of my mother and then my umbilical cord was cut. Did you know that the eternal son's umbilical cord's never been cut? The second person of the blessed trinity 
is still drawing his life out of the Father, and the Father is still giving his life to the Son. And so the Son says, I can do nothing of myself. I can only do what I see my Father do. I draw my life from him. But the Son receives life from the Father and then gives it back to the Father, and the Father sends him down here to give his life for us. And you will find one of the themes in the Gospel of John. What is love? To lay down your life for somebody else. You see, that's where the definition comes. It is love that sacrifices itself for another. In John 15, where he talks about them as friends, he says, what is a friend? A friend is one that's willing to lay down his life for another, for his friend. You'll find in 2 Corinthians 15, where Paul is, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with 14, where Paul is talking about Christ and the cross, the love of Christ constrains us. For we, we know that Christ died for us, and if he one died for all, then all have died, and we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us and gave himself for us. So to love God means that you'll pour out your life for him, because his love for you was he poured out his life for you. So you see, this kind of love turns us inside out, and the world cannot think it. And so, it is a, something that came strictly by revelation. Or, <laughs> let me share. I wanted to read through the book of Ephesians at a sitting, just to get the impact of it. So I'm reading along, sort of lost in it, and I come to the fifth chapter. I read the first verse and burst out laughing. That's very unusual for me reading the Scripture, but it seems so ridiculous. I said, Paul, you've lost it. Because you know what the first verse of the fifth chapter says? Imitate God. Imitate the Omnipotent One. There are few people in human history who've tried that and all turned out to be fools. The Omniscient One. My problem is, if I've got a question that needs an answer, if I seek until I get an answer, I usually pick up ten more questions that don't have answers to while I'm finding the answer to that one. So my problem is exploding ignorance, not exploding knowledge. Me imitate God? He's the omnipresent one. Now, email's a little improvement, but I still am limited to one spot at one time, and he is not. Imitate God. And then while I'm sort of scoffing at Paul, I read the rest of the verse. Imitate God. Live in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So there you get the definition biblically of what love is. It's where you give your life away to someone else. Not where you draw something out of somebody else, you pour yours out for them. So love is self-giving. You know, all the religions of the world have sacrifice in them. To be religious, somewhere you're gonna, you're gonna have sacrifice. The interesting thing is that Christianity is the absolute reverse of all the other religions of the world in sacrifice. And John's Gospel is the place where you see it most clearly. Because, you see, when you come to the cross, the cross is an altar, and there's a sacrifice on that altar. 
But it's not the one who's worshiping, making a sacrifice to the one who's worshiped. It is the one who is worshiped, making a sacrifice to the worshiper, and he's making a sacrifice of himself. It is a complete reversal. Christianity is 180 degrees the opposite of all the other religions of the world. All of what I've had to say tonight at this point, I think has a certain pertinence for us today in the United States after September the 11th. Is there anything we ought to learn here? You know, as I was mulling on it, I don't think I've ever had an experience. It shook me as much. I saw that second tower collapse. I was watching TV and when it happened. I didn't do another thing for six hours. I don't know when I've gone through depression personally like that. And I thought, is there anything we need to learn here? And you know, I thought back, God doesn't work on our schedule. He's a whale of a lot slower when we want him to do something for us than we think necessary often. And he's a whale of a lot faster when he wants to straighten us out than we'd like for him to be sometimes. So his time schedule is different from ours. And you read the scripture and it's a long ways from the creation to Noah. It's a long ways from Noah to Abraham. A long ways from Abraham to Moses. You know, it took us 70 years in the 20th century to learn through Marxist atheism when the fear of God goes and belief in God is gone. Nobody is safe. You hear me? Auschwitz? Russia? Keep on going. When the fear of God goes out of the human heart, nobody's safe. Now, we've tried to build a secular nation. We should learn from that. But I wonder now if the lesson we're going to have to learn and how long it will take us. If you worship the wrong God, nobody's safe. And that's the reason the Gospel of John is so crucial to us. And knowing the right God is where eternal life is. What does it mean then to know God? What is the knowledge? What does the word know mean? I think we need to be very careful here to differentiate between what it means to know about and what it means to know personally. Because the model for Western thought on knowledge is subject-object relationship where the student, the scholar, the scientist, the engineer, he studies the object, and it's a thing, and he is in control of it. But when it comes to a knowledge of a person, you have a remarkably different situation. Subject-subject knowledge is radically different from subject-object knowledge. You see, the model of the subject-object knowledge comes to us from the, from the sciences, and we impose it in the social science. I, I remembered something that had happened that sort of threw that into focus for me. Elsie and I pastored 
we're in on the beginning of a community church in a suburb of Albany, New York, where there was no Protestant church. I preached for about five years in my house with my back to a door facing. I could pat most of my congregation on the head. That's the reason I always like to have people close, not sit at remote distances. But in that church, we had a young lady who had a remarkable experience of Christ, and she was a remarkable person, very gifted. She majored in pre-med and piano performance at the University of Rochester. That's as close to impossible as any situation is in an academic environment. And then she decided, weighed what she should be, a professional pianist, concert pianist, or to be a doctor. She decided to become a doctor. So she went to medical school in Albany. And she was assigned a cadaver. And she went to see the cadaver. And uh, there were two people assigned to that cadaver. And the other person showed up. It was the son of the man who was the head of the medical school there. He came from not a strong evangelical background, but one day, climbing a mountain in Colorado, he had a religious experience. And he decided he wanted to be a missionary. Never met a missionary, knew very little about missions. But that was came to him, and he decided he'd try that. So he comes in to see his cadaver and looks, and across from the cadaver is this beautiful, very bright young lady. And there weren't many girls in medical school in those days. And so Tom looked across at her and said, What under the sun are you doing here? And she looked back sort of jaunty, that's the kind of person she was, and said, I'm going to be a medical missionary. It blew Tom right out of the water. He said, what? She said, I'm going to be a medical missionary. Well, that started an interesting relationship. After a few days, when Tom got ready to go see his cadaver, he said, maybe I better check how I look a little more. <laughs> and so you have two kinds of knowledge that begins here. With the cadaver, he's in total control. That cadaver's not even going to wiggle on him. But what about that girl on the other side? He's a long ways from being in control. And an interesting relationship developed. I remember the day they came to see me and said, would you marry us? And they ended up going to Nepal and spent most of their life, many years in Nepal. Two of the most significant missionaries on the face of the earth today. But you know, what fascinated me was the difference between subject-object knowledge and subject-subject knowledge. You see, in subject-subject knowledge, there's a contingency element that you can never remove. At least I've never been able to get out of, out of my relationship with Elsie. If I go away for a week or two, when I come back, I keep watching her fade. Because in her face, I'll find out how I stand. Because when you've been married 57 years, you can get in trouble. Been there, done it. You see, person-to-person -person knowledge is a very different thing. And you know, sometimes I get uneasy about some of our Bible conferences. They were learning a book and a text instead of a person.
So I hope while we're together in these days, we'll find what Luther said, the stricter is the manger in which you find the Christ child. My grandchildren took me over here across the mountain to one of those museums beside a pigeon ford. In it, they were, had a hologram. So my grandchildren took me through, you know, to check, check me out. And they'd stand me in front of this hologram. And they'd say, now, Papa, look, look. I'd stare. They'd say, what do you see? I say nothing. And then finally I say, oh, for heaven's sake. And that hologram would come out of the colors and so forth that were there. And I could see an object. You know, what we need is to face the scripture until not a picture comes out, but a person comes out. And we're face to face with Christ. And we begin to get closer to him to get to know him more intimately. Because did you know that you can't know anybody without his consent? Have you ever tried to know anybody who didn't want you to know him? Can't be done. Did you know to know a person, both persons have to give? Knowing about, that's another matter. But knowing, you've got to consent. I remember how shocked I was when I read in Galatians 4.9. Paul is speaking and said, Now there was a time when you didn't know God. No, he said, excuse me, there was a time when you weren't known by God. Did you know the world has more people in it that God doesn't know than he does that he knows? He knows their temperature, their blood pressure, their cholesterol count. He knows all the details, but he can't know you if you don't consent to it. You know, it'd be a great pity if any person came into this conference whose knowledge was only about him. Because the joy and the richness and the eternal life is not knowing about. The eternal life is knowing him. Now, do you have that vibrant relationship with him? Now, you'll notice something in the Gospel of John that is just about universal in it. It's almost everywhere. It's the use of the word send and the word sent. I think the two Greek words for send, apostello and pempo, are used some 40 times in the Gospel of John. And Jesus explains himself as, I'm the sent one. And my father is the sending one. In Greek syntax, you'll find this expression. He will refer to the father as the sending me father. The sending me father. Now, uh, what does it say? The first person of the blessed trinity in love for his world gives life to his son. His son gives that life back to the father. And the father says, if that world down there is to be redeemed, somebody has to go and give his life to them so they can live. And so the Son says, I will go. And so the Father sends the Son. The Son is the sent one. Now, you notice where the initiative of our salvation is? It comes out of that agape love, where God loves us not for what we can do for Him. He loves us for what He can do for us. 
And so he sends his son. And his son loves us for what he can do for us. And so he comes and dies for us. Because he wants us. He likes us. Notice how many times Jesus says in the Gospel of John, where I am, I want them to be. Have you ever noticed that? You know one of the major reasons I believe in life after death? The simple words of Jesus when he says to his Father, where I am, I want them to be where I am. He likes us. You know, that comes as a shock to so many people. That God could like people like you and me. We have a friend who grew up in a Roman Catholic home. Her mother's dying with cancer. She was lying on the bed with her, talking with her. Her mother said, Nancy, do you suppose God can ever forgive me for not going to Mass? She's dying with cancer. Nancy looked back at her and said, Mother, you're going to have to learn. There's nothing you can ever do that will make God love you more. Because the reason He loves you is because of who He is. He is love. He said, Mother, you won't believe this, but He actually likes you. The Roman Catholic mother threw both hands in the air and said, Oh no, that could never be. God likes well, why does he want you with him where he is if he doesn't like you? I don't know about you, but I find comfort in the fact that the eternal God has his arms out to us and is seeking us. And if we don't know him, it's because we've shut him out. How many of you would be familiar with Helen Rosevere or any of her books? They had a missionary in Zaire, British, who had to fly back to Britain, I think for health reasons. And the only way they could get her back was to take her from Zaire to Uganda. And so Helen got the assignment. Medical doctor, woman who spent her life in Zaire, Cambridge University graduate. So she drove to Uganda, got her on the plane, and then had to go back. So she drove all night long. And she's riding along on a deserted highway, nothing in sight anywhere. And she, about six o'clock in the morning after a night of driving, and she gets very sleepy. And so she decides she'll fix herself a cup of coffee. She has the equipment in her van to do that. And so she stopped the van and got out to go to the back to fix her cup of coffee. And there stood a black African, a shepherd. And she thought to herself, oh no, last thing in the world she wanted to see was a human being. And the shepherd moved toward her and she knew she had to be sociable. So she spoke to him and they did the normal communicative things of greeting each other in that culture. And as she's thinking now I can get a, get rid of him and get my cup of coffee, he says to her, are you a sent one? And she said, what's this? He said, are you a sent one? He said, well, yes, I am. Because that's what a missionary is. As the Father has sent me, I send you. But she said, why do you ask? Well, he said, my brother, who's a school teacher, came home the other day. 
And he said they had a visitor at their school that said he came from the great God to tell them about Jesus, that he was a sent one. She said the way he used his syntax, his grammar was such that she knew that he didn't know that Jesus was a person. So she said, well, yes, I'm a sent one. And I can tell you about Jesus. She took out the wordless book, you know, the four-page colors, <laughs> black, red, white, gold, with no words in it, just our sin, forgiveness, uh, salvation, and heaven, and glory. Uh, so she explained that to him. And he was sweetly and graciously led to know the Lord. And she said, uh, tell me a little more about your brother. Oh, he said, he's a, he didn't even stay to hear the missionary, the sent one. He went to the bar and got drunk and came home. And we asked him why he was home early. And he said, because they had a sent one who had come from the great God to tell them about Jesus. And he said, do you know, as I took care of my sheep, I found myself saying, the great God, a sent one, to tell about Jesus. And she said, he said, you know, I'd like to know the great God and whatever he sent. But he said, you know, as I said that word Jesus, I just kept saying it over and over again. And it was sweet in my mouth. So I just kept saying, the great God has sent one to tell us about Jesus. Jesus. The sweetness in that word drew me. Now that's the Gospel of John. <laughs> it may take a missionary getting sick that's got to go home to England. It may take a long car ride early in the morning, get a woman with a Cambridge degree to talk to a black shepherd who's got a hunger in his heart. Now, you see, that's the kind of God we have, and there's only one God like that. And if you know him, just to know him, means life, eternal life. Father, we know so little of the richness of your word. Help us. Put a hunger in our hearts, a hunger for it. But let that hunger be an expression of a much deeper hunger, a hunger for you. And let these hours that we have together be hours in which you're the main character in our time together. You're the one of whom we are most supremely conscious. You're the one we seek the most earnestly. And you're the one whose companionship is most prized and valued by us. 
and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.